Good morning. Good to see you. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, as we... <laughs> Sorry, that was in my throat. I'm still rolling. I mean, I, mean, I was shooting. So keep it rolling. Good morning, good to see you. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, just a couple of things to get us started. So in our series, Letters to the Church, we are in the book of Ephesians right now. And so what we're, what we're, what we're seeing so far is that Paul takes the first half of the letter, the first three chapters in your Bible, to dig a theological well that he will draw from for life application for the second half of the letter. So in chapter 4, he's turning a corner, if you will, from theology to life application, beginning with life in the church. And so we began this part of the, of the letter last Sunday where Paul reminded us of this unity that we have in Christ, that every reason we have to be disunified or to be not in fellowship with one another, every reason we have for hostility towards one another has been killed on the cross. And so therefore, since that's true theologically in the church itself, then we have a oneness about us. And so we, we spent some time last week talking about the symmetry of the church, the oneness of the church, and though we are individuals making it up, there's something uniquely the same about all of us. And so in six verses in the letter, Paul uses the word one seven times. And so as we begin verse seven, Paul is going to take a shift now towards individual roles in the church, but he does so with a backdrop of unity. Matter of fact, the first word in verse seven is the word one. It doesn't look that way in your English Bible because that's a weird word to start a sentence with. But Paul, above and before anything else that we would think about individually, he wants us to understand our oneness. So now he's going to shift with these words. Let's read Ephesians 4. 7 through 12, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measurement of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So this week we're going to look at how Paul now begins to talk about our individual roles in the church against the backdrop of our unity. He begins with these words, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So clearly, Paul's transition is to now begin talking about each one of us, that we've each one been given something. So if we look at the way Paul uses the word uh, grace in this letter so far, we see that theologically, Paul has already laid out some things that we've been given as a result of God's grace, all the way back to chapter 1 
Starting in verse 7, Paul says this, In him, being Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So clearly from chapter, chapter 1, we, we have the gift of redemption and the forgiveness of sins as a result of God's grace. Paul mentions this again in chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by Grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So here in chapter 2, Paul takes what he mentioned in chapter 1, that grace has brought to us salvation, a forgiveness of sins. And in chapter 2, he expounds on that to explain that through grace, God has, has brought to us life. He's made, us, he's made the dead man come to life. He's brought us salvation but not only that, he's seated, raised us and seated us with him in the heavenly places as a result of the gift of his grace. Now, in the next chapter, Paul mentions the gift of grace again. Speaking of his own personal life, he says in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so here talking about himself, Paul expresses that the gift of ministry was given to him as a gift of God's grace. And so this conversation that Paul is having with the church in Ephesus is a conversation that he also had with the church in Rome. It's also a conversation that he had with the church in Corinth. So we look at the letters he wrote to both the church in Rome, Romans, and the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. We're going to see um, not just the same topic coming up, but even a deeper understanding of what Paul's getting to here. So if we look at Romans 12, Paul's going to talk again about the grace that has been given according to the measure that God assigns. But he begins in verse 3 with these words, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. And so as Paul talks about the faith that we have been assigned, to, assigned by God, that he wants us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. So he goes into this conversation about unity and individuality and how they work together. Verse 4, for as in one body, so he's thinking unity, we have many members. He's thinking individuality, and the members do not all have the same function. So in our individual making up of the body, we have different functions. There's something uniquely individual about each one of us. Verse 5, so we, though many, thinking individually, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Now that's something incredibly profound. 
that when we become members of the church, we're not becoming members of an organization. We're becoming members of one another. So, so that's why at Solid Rock, we don't just do organizational membership, but we do covenant membership because the membership really isn't with the building or the property, the assets, the, the physical building that we call the church. Our, our commitment, our membership, our connection, our covenant is with one another. So I'm, I'm a member of you and you're a member of me. Verse 6 this being true, thinking about our individuality, he says, having gifts that differ, so we have different giftings, different functions within the church, according to the grace given to us. So that when grace showed up to save us, grace brought with it unity, and grace brought with it our gifting and our function and our role within the church. So if we think about a timeline of our spiritual journey, it wasn't that God saved us at the beginning with his grace. And then at some point down the road, God came to us and brought us unity by his grace. And then some other point further down the road, he brought to us a gifting or a calling or a function within the church. They all showed up at the same time. If you have been saved by grace, you've been gifted by grace. And each one of us uniquely gifted, individually, different from one another, but not, set, not, not apart from the backdrop of the whole. Then he gives a few examples. He finishes verse six. He says, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith is service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Each believer has been given a function and a gifting by God's grace for the church. Now I want to share just a couple of practical ways that if we're not careful, if we think of ourselves too individually, we'll begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. So this was something that I was really bad at as a Christian early on. Um, I would come to church, God would stir my heart, I would get excited about the idea of being used by God in his kingdom, so I automatically assumed if I'm going to be used by God, I've got to come up with something new. I need to start something, start a new ministry, start a new part of a new ministry. So from my perspective, in order to be involved in God's kingdom, I had to create a role for myself to get involved in. Now, at, let me just share with you how we make decisions at Solid Rock and, and why we do so. So there are four elders right now at Solid Rock leading our church, and we're in the process of bringing on new elders. But the elders at Solid Rock Church, we function in a certain way because of what we believe true about these passages we're reading. So every decision we make is made by 100% unanimous consensus. Okay, so here's what that means. We don't vote on anything. We discuss. We differ in opinions. We work through things. But at the end of the day, we don't make any decisions, whether it's hiring a new staff member, changing a service time, buying new carpet, 
We don't make any decisions at all unless it's 100% unanimous. Now, two, two reasons for that. One, from, from the first six verses of chapter four in Ephesians, Paul tells us to maintain, which means to manage and protect unity. So on one hand, we, we want to protect the unity of the church. We understand that disunity among the elders will transcend and trickle down and, and become disunity in, in the church. But here's a second reason. Every elder meeting starts with a prayer, God, help us check our agendas at the door. Now, this is something I need personally. I walk into every elder meeting, every staff meeting, every meeting I walk into, I walk into with a personal agenda. And if I don't submit that, if I don't check that at the door, then we don't reach a consensus. And that's true of all the elders. So even though we've been given this individual calling and function and role in the church, we've been given a unified agenda, a unified mission, a unified purpose. And so rather than trying to create a role to work in, what I'm learning to do in Christ over time in the church is to begin to submit myself to what's already going on. And so, so one area I see where we think of ourselves more highly than we ought is in, is in team ministries and volunteerism and the way, that we, um, the way we want to fulfill what we would call God's calling on our lives. That if I'm going to fulfill this calling, I've got to create a niche or a role or, or play out my passions and my interests in a way that I kind of get to lead my own ministry. Can you imagine if... If we gave into that wholesale at Solid Rock, we went to every life group leader, every team leader, every person who's volunteering here at the church, every kids small group leader, every student small group leader, and we said, tell you what, from here on out, you just spend time with God, determine what he wants you to do, and just go do it. Can you imagine the chaos People going in hundreds of different directions, all with good intentions, all with the motive of I want to be used by God, and this is what I'm passionate about, I'm interested in. All of us going in different directions and the church itself going absolutely nowhere. See, we have a singular mission. There's a sameness about our calling. So there must be a sameness about the way that teams work and the way life groups work, that we work together for a common purpose. Now, I see this play out as well in finances. So again, this is something I was really bad at early on in the church. Um, As a a young person, um, I became a believer as a teenager and began... Uh, pursuing this idea of ministry even at 17, 18 years old. And, and so one of the things I learned early on is that, um, that in order for the church to work, uh, it re- took finances, and, and the finances came from the tithe of the members who are believers. And so I realized early on that that was my responsibility. And so um, even though I you know, 
whatever it was, made $47.13 a week, then I would tie $4.70. To the penny, I was very meticulous about tithing until something came up that stirred me or captivated me or interested me. Oh, you know what? The youth, they need a new volleyball net. So then I'll just take my my $4.70 and I'll save it with next week's $4.70 until I can go buy a youth volleyball net. Because they need it, right? I mean, this is important. This is something that, that will help the ministry. And, and so with good intentions, I would break, break fellowship with those who were contributing to the mission of the church. And I would go out on my own mission until the net was bought for the volleyball court for the students. And then I would come back and get on track. Now, this doesn't sound bad in and of itself, but can you imagine... Can you imagine what the church would look like if that's what we all did? We designated our giving to the things that we're most interested in, most passionate about, the thing that we're most stirred about. Can you imagine the chaos? And and you know, at the end of the day, here's what happens. He or she who has the most money wins. The ministry that becomes the the best funded ministry is the one that takes over and the mission of that ministry becomes the mission of the church. And so in my journey with Christ, I'm learning to submit myself to the whole instead of just pursuing my individual interests and passions. To say, God, what you're doing in the church as a whole supersedes what I perceive you're doing in me. And if you're truly doing this in me, then then what you're doing in me, what you're gifting me for, what you're stirring me for, will fit into the function of the body. It'll make the whole better. It'll help the whole achieve the mission. It will edify the church, not just me. let Let me express this with a few challenging statements. If, If you or I or any of us, if you are pushing your own agenda over the mission of the church, you're thinking of yourself, first of all, too individually. You've lost sight of the backdrop of the church. But Paul would say you're thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Think about it. Because what you're indirectly saying is this, what God is telling me is more important than what he's telling the whole. As soon as you begin to push your agenda as the thing that God wants you to do and the agenda or the mission of the church begins to slip into the backdrop, what you're saying is what God is telling me is more important than what he's telling the whole. Now, you wouldn't want the elders to work that way. Can you imagine? There's a second area where I see this playing out. Let me, let me say this. If you or I or any of us are giving financially to the church and you're giving designated funds to a specific designated ministry or purpose before you give your tithe, then you're thinking of yourself more highly 
than you ought. We, I don't know if you understand how this works. When you give designated funds, like I designated this money to this purpose, this ministry, this thing, legally that money can't be spent on anything else but that thing. And so a lot of good intentions from the past now become frustrations in the future. Let me give you an example. Like, so um, right now we have a, a small amount of money. We have a certain amount of money designated for sports ministries. We don't have any sports ministries going on. We have people in our church who play sports and are involved in activities, but we're not organizing as a church sports ministries. So that money can't be spent until we have sports ministries to spend it on. So like if you decide, you know what, that church van just needs new tires. And if the church isn't going to pay for them, I'll pay for them. And you designate money to put tires on the church van, and then we sell the van. We can't use that money on anything else. We don't have a van to put tires on, so the money sits there in a designated account for church van tires. Now, you think I'm making that up. I've been at a church where money was designated for church van tires and the church van didn't even have an engine that ran. You begin to see the chaos that could come out of our individual thinking when we push our agendas, when we pursue our own passions, and then we spend our money that way. If you're giving financially to the church, if you're not giving today, I'm not asking you to give money. I'm talking to those who already are. If you're giving your money to designated funds before you give the tithe, you're thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. What you're saying is that what God is telling you is more important than what he's telling the whole. So, I mean, this is something that, that Hallie and I are, have struggled with and continue to struggle with. God will stir our hearts. God will break us for a person or a ministry or a situation. And we feel compelled by God to give financially. And so we struggle. We look at what we're giving in our tithe and we think, you know what? If we could just take that money and reroute it for a season of time, we could take care of that need. And God convicts us every time. Do not trust me to take care of that need. Do not trust what I'm doing in the church as a whole and if I'm asking you to give to that, how about this? Instead of rerouting your tithe, how about doing without some Starbucks? If, if your heart is stirred and broken for that situation to the extent that you want to act, how about rerouting your Starbucks fund instead of your tithe? And so this is, this is where we land on it, that we, we need to be willing to sacrifice to give to those special situations, those special needs, maybe helping a kid go to camp or um, helping a, a family that's struggling or, or, or giving, you know, giving money to uh, somebody who's uh, homeless, those sort of things. We don't not give to those things, but we give to the whole first. And then those, those things we give to out of sacrificial offerings, saying these situations are more important than our comfort or our luxuries. Now, the flip side of this is, is true as well. 
if you or I or any one of us is instead of pushing your agenda in the church, you're doing the opposite. You're leaning back. You're sitting back in neutral doing nothing, neglecting the function and the gifting that God has placed in your life, letting everybody else take care. I just don't want to push my own agenda, so therefore I'm not going to do anything. Then you too are thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Whatever reason it is that you have for not engaging in the mission of the church has to do with thinking of yourself too highly. I'm too busy. Well, what you mean is the things I'm spending my time on are more important to me than serving the church. Uh, it's just, you know, I'm just not, I'm not confident enough. I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm too shy. Okay? Then what you're saying is your personality is keeping you from doing the thing God is calling you and has gifted you to do. You're thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Let us be cautious that what we that we don't say with our lives indirectly that what God is telling us is more important than what he's telling the whole or what God is leading us to do is somehow more right than what he's telling the church as a whole to do. So from here, Paul moves on in verse 8 to take a snapshot of the gospel in Jesus' descending from his throne to earth, walking among us, dying, resurrecting, ascending back to his throne, that through that, God has given us these giftings and these roles. In verse 8, he says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. See where there's a connection here? In verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And so Paul says, you can't think about Jesus' ascension back to the right hand of the Father without first thinking about his descension from the right hand of the Father to the earth, to be born in humility, to walk righteously among us, to die sacrificially on a cross, to take our sins to the grave, to resurrect and to ascend back to the Father. Matter of fact, his descending from the right hand of God to the earth is, is a descension that you or I have never experienced because his descension ended in the depths of the grave. So he who ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended to the lower regions, the earth? Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18 here. But he's, he's drawing a connection between the gospel, what God has done to rescue us, and the gifts that he has given us. So, so think of it in these terms. Christ is the head of the church. We as a church follow in submission. The way we discern the direction God is calling us to go is through consensus. We look for unity. We maintain it. We protect it. We're following Christ as a whole. When I break agenda with the church, not only am I saying that what God is telling me is more important than what he's saying to the church, but I'm losing sight of the ascension here. 
I'm losing sight of the fact that, that Christ has ascended to the right hand of God and sits in authority, and I'm taking that idea and submitting it to, to myself or my own agenda, my own passions, and I'm putting myself at the right hand of God in authority and saying what I believe God wants is more important. And so Paul wants us to think of our gifting with the backdrop of unity, but also he wants us to have in our mind the ascension of Christ to a position of authority, that our gifts are under his authority, not our own. And one of the, uh, one of the, the theological accomplishments or um, recoveries from the Reformation period in the church was this idea of the priesthood of the believer. Some of you have heard that phrase. And it's a theology. The title captures the theology in this, that each one of us individually as believers, not only are we in relationship with God and we have the same access to God, so nobody has a better access or a quicker access. I don't have um, a special phone in my office in a hidden drawer. I pull it out and I get a direct line to God. We all have same access to God. But in the same way, we all, all have a same calling and a priesthood as believers. And we've all been given the role of ministry. If you've received grace, you've been called to be a minister of grace. If you've received reconciliation, you've been called to be a minister of reconciliation. Now, it was a, it was a beautiful, life-giving theology that, that came out of the Reformation. Uh, so coming out of a time period where the church was operating, where the pastors, the priests, the, the clergy somehow had this special access to God. They were the only ones to have clear revelation from God and had placed themselves in, 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 a, in a high level of authority over the church. They were thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. And so it was life-giving when guys like Luther and others began to break away from the tyranny of this, uh, this system to begin to reinstate with the believers God's role and function in calling on their lives individually to be priests in the kingdom. So, but as the pendulum swung, uh, swinging past priesthood of the believer, landing in autonomy and fueling narcissism. So the idea then became, if I'm a priest in the kingdom, I don't need the church. If you want to follow me, you can be a part of my church, but I don't need the church. And so there was a losing sight of the whole in that pendulum swing. Now, now who doesn't like being in charge? And so this concept has run rampant in the modern church. I have access to God. I am a priest in the kingdom. Therefore, I don't need the church. I'll attend as long as it's going my way. But if it's not going my way, because I'm a priest in God's kingdom, I'll be able to tell it's not going my way, and then, oh, then, I'll go find another church. So the next thing that Paul does is he brings up church leadership and membership and the unique relationship between the two and how the individuality within both is still for the common good of the whole. So with this in mind, Paul shifts in, verse, shifts in verse 11 and says, and he gave. So this gave, this giving, this gifts are all a result of God's grace that we might not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. He goes right to the leaders. And he, being Christ, gave through the gift of grace the 
apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, these are what we would call the clergy, the leaders in the church. Now, here's the thing about those of us who lead in the church. We, we love the spotlight. We love, uh, we love running the ball. We're ball hogs. But Paul, Paul, what Paul's going to do is now he's going to address us who lead and remind us of our function as called leaders in the church and at the same time remind you of yours. And so by the gift of God's grace, he's given these roles to lead the church, verse 12, to do something. Look at what he says. To equip the saints. Who are the saints? The believers. For what? For the work of ministry. For the building up. For building up the body of Christ. Do you see how it's all connected? So, those who have been called into leadership in the church have really been called to an equipping, a coaching position to equip the saints, the believers, the members to do the ministry. We think of this in, in football terms. Like, I love being the quarterback. I love holding the ball and being responsible for making the plays. But what God is saying, I haven't called you to do that. It called you to a position of leadership that you might stand on the sidelines and coach well, equip well, the members to go do the ministry. Now, now here's the problem. If we're not careful, we'll get too many coaches out on the field. And so the, what, where, where do the players go? Back to the sideline. And there's a second problem that happens. You spend too much time on the sideline, you get bored, and you begin looking over your shoulder at the bleachers, and you think, you know what, maybe I'm just better suited for the bleachers. If I'm just going to sit here and watch, then I can go do that from up there, and I don't have to wear all this crazy gear, like I'm out here to play or something. And so what Paul is reminding us is this gift that has brought us salvation and redemption and forgiveness of sins, it's made us alive, it's saved us, has brought to us all a specific function as individual members. We're individual members of the same body and our functions and our gifts are to serve the whole and make the whole better. And then he says, church leaders, your gift has been given that you might Equip well the saints to get out on the field, to play hard, to play well. Your job is to encourage them from the sidelines. For what reason? For building up the body of Christ. I want to end in 1 Corinthians 12. This is another place where Paul is having this conversation with the church. And, and again, takes the conversation maybe a little bit deeper for us. So in 1 Corinthians 12, he's writing on this same topic, starting in verse 4. He says, reminding us of our individuality, now there are a variety of gifts. Talking about us as individual members but the same spirit, verse five. And there are varieties of service, reminding us of all the different team ministries and things we're involved in, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, things we get involved in, things we're doing, but it is the same God who empowers them all 
and everyone. So there are going to be a variety of gifts and service and activities and team ministries and life groups and things going on in the church. But there must be something about all these various activities and giftings and servings that reflects God, that reflects our sameness, our unity, our oneness. Matter of fact, Paul uses the Trinity here to explain this. There is there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God. So in the same way that there is one God who expresses himself in three persons, so the church should function too. Our unity should be so tight, so tightly knit, so bound together, so clear and consistent that it would reflect that we have one God leading us as a church. And our individuality then, should it be expressed in the same way that God's persons are expressed in the Trinity, that what the Son is doing, the Spirit is doing, what the Spirit is doing, the Father is doing, what the Father is saying, the Son is saying, what the Son is saying, the Spirit is saying. We talked about this last week. Use student ministry as an example. We don't all have students in student ministries. We're not all students. But if, but if a new person comes into the church, that person should be able to ask any member on the campus, do you have a student ministry? Please say yes. And I would take it a step further. Any member on the campus will be able to say, and they start Wednesday night at this time. So rather than rerouting to somebody who's in the know, there should be a sense of oneness about what we're doing. We're all doing student ministry here. We're all doing kids ministry here. We all went to Flint, Michigan last week. What? I thought 19 went. 19 traveled, but we all went. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So our unique giftings is a manifestation that God's Spirit is in us for the common good. Not for my good. I wasn't given a gift by the Holy Spirit to pursue my ambitions, my agenda, my passions, or my stirrings. The gift given to me was for the common good. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. You see that phrase coming up over and over again? To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpreting of tongues. All these unique, very individual giftings were given by one and the same Spirit. So that if I say God's Holy Spirit has gifted me as a teacher and this is how he wants me to use that gift in the church, but you say God's Spirit has given you the gift as a teacher, and he wants you to do that thing in the church, we can't both be right. So indirectly what we're saying is, we're not listening to the same Spirit.
If you're in Christ, you have been given a spiritual gift, a specific gift, a specific ability and function within the church to fit in with what the church is doing. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You may have been given a gift, but your gift is to be used as he wills, as he decides. And then once again, verse 12, for just as the body is one, it has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. If we're not careful, not only when we push our own agendas, are we thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we're reflecting a wrong image of God. We're saying indirectly, there must be more than one God. If I say God is telling me to do this and you say God is telling you to do this, whether it's a volunteer role or whether it's in your financial giving, whatever it is, what we're indirectly saying is then there must be just more than one God. That's the only way we can reconcile that. And Paul reminds the church and he reminds us, you have all individually as members, you've all drank from the same cup. There's one spirit working in in all of you. Let's end here. We, collectively, have been given the gift of ministry as a result of God's grace. When God's grace showed up for all of us individually, those of us who are believers, and saved us, forgave us, redeemed us, made us alive, at that moment, God's grace showed up also in the same package with gifting and function and role for you and for me. We all have received this gift of ministry as a result of God's grace. Therefore, you have been called to the mission of the church. You've been called to the mission of the church. What God has called the church to do, he has called you to do. And here's the thing. We don't get to make that up. So we don't sit in an elder meeting and go, what's the mission of our church going to be? I mean, as soon as we do that, we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. We're neglecting the lordship of Jesus who said to us, the mission of the church is to make disciples of the nations. That's our mission. Our church is called to that. And if you're a member of this church, you're called to that mission. So here's the thing. Even if you don't join here and you go join somewhere else, you have been called to serve the mission of that church as long as they're following the mission that Jesus has laid out for them. You've been called to the mission of the church. You've been given gifts to be used for the church. The financial blessings God has poured out in your family and your life so abundantly aren't so that you can go push your own agendas, but that you might serve what God is doing through the church. Whenever you join a church, regardless of what church it is, as long as they are on the mission of making disciples, you have been called to join that church on that mission. And it should be reflected in the way we serve. It should be reflected in the way we talk about what the church is doing. We discussed this last week, the eyes, the 
the me's need to be dropped for we's and us. Instead of saying, well, they are doing this, we say, we are doing this. Instead of saying, yeah, the, we, we had 19 people sign up to go to Flint and they went, we say, no, 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 we went to Flint, Michigan. 19 of us traveled. I want to end here by praying for us. Um, I'm going to trust that in some way God's word has challenged you on some front. Either one, this is the first time you realized and maybe you're discovering why ministry or working in the church is so frustrating for you and why it feels like everybody's against you. Maybe you've been pushing your own agenda. Maybe today's the day that you say, you know what, I'm going to step back, surrender my agenda. I'm going to get involved in what God is doing. Maybe for, for others like me, this surrendering of your agenda is a, is, a, is a every day, multiple times a day thing. And maybe today you would say once again, God, I surrender my agenda to the mission of the cross. Help me to be more faithful to the mission of the church. Help me to be more faithful to the agenda, Jesus, you're leading than I am to my own. Help me to not think of myself more highly than I ought. And others here today, who are realizing, you know what, I'm not even a Christian. Listen, I want to be up front with you. Christianity is not a therapeutic deism. It's not a way to cope with life. It's profoundly essential to who you are and your existence in the universe. God is calling you back to himself to restore a relationship that you were created for, to forgive sins that you've committed that you weren't created to commit, to fix all that has gone wrong and to heal all that is broken. He's calling you back to himself today. And it requires grace. He wants to lavish you with grace today. And in doing so, he wants you to know that my, my grace brings to you a new life, a new heart, a new calling, a new role, a new purpose in the universe. I want to make you alive today. And so if that's you, I'm going to pray for you as well. And we'll have our prayer partners down here at the front who are positioned and ready to talk with you and pray with you about becoming a Christian today. Let's pray.